The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father, your word creates life. It brings into being things that previously were not. And Father, we acknowledge that you don't speak some words which are powerful and some which are not. You don't speak some words which carry your full authority and some that do not. We know that every single word that you speak carries the power and the authority, the life-giving reality that comes from you, our living God. So we wait with bated breath, Father, to see what you will do with your word this morning as we hear it and then as we see it in the table. Father, do what only you can do now, we ask it. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So go ahead and return to your feet, please. We continue working verse by verse through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We continue on in the second chapter, reading verse 11 all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 22. This is the holy, inerrant, infallible, sufficient word of God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All God's people said, Amen. 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 So it's been some two weeks since we touched on this second chapter in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, but it won't take you long to remember, to get your bearings about you and remember where we are. We're talking about the far-offness, the hopelessness, the reality that Gentiles were once separated far away from God. Talking about these particular hurdles that are unique to the Gentile people, hurdles that the Jewish people themselves did not face. They were the ones that had the ordinances. They're the ones that had the law and the prophets and the promises and the covenants. He's talking about the reality that the Gentile people were fall off, far off without hope and without God. He goes on to talk about the reality that not only were we separated from God, but we were separated from the people of God, alienated from those people. More than this, not only was there a distance and a division between us, but he goes on to say that there's an enmity. There was a hostility. And I don't think that we really can understand the full weight of this. We know that there was a division between Jew and Gentile. We know that the, the Jews were the chosen, the elect people of God, but we don't fully appreciate the hostility that they had one for another. The reality that if you grew up a young Jewish boy and came home and told your mother that you wanted to marry a Gentile girl, they planned a funeral rather than a wedding. They were the dogs. They were the outcasts, they were the outsiders, and the hostility went both ways. Of course, the Gentiles, they didn't like being looked down upon. They didn't like the way that the, the Jews treated them. And so there was, this, there was this enmity, this hatred. They were true, lifelong enemies. And what Paul is saying is that God has not just come 
that in the coming of Christ Jesus, he has not just come to reconcile us to himself, but he's come to reconcile us to enemies, to the outsiders, to the others, to the them, that God has come to make peace where there was no peace, both vertical and horizontal peace. So you may recall that when we were last together, we looked there at verse 14, where he says that he, speaking of Christ Jesus, he himself is our peace. You'll remember that we came to the conclusion that what Paul is saying here is that if you have Christ, if you are in Christ, then you have peace. But if you don't have Christ, you don't have peace. You don't have peace with God, most importantly. But because you don't have peace with God, you cannot have peace with others, and you most assuredly won't feel peace in yourself. And so that the only hope then for peace, for the man that feels turmoil in his own heart, for the man that finds turmoil in his own house, the only hope then for peace is found in Christ Jesus, coming and trusting in him. He is our peace. And I tell you, brothers, is why we stick to the doctrine of the word of God, the teaching of the word of God. While we don't equivocate, you see, there's this movement in the world, even amongst the so-called Christian church, where we're to pursue unity at all costs. People will say things like doctrine brings division. Why, why do you have to insist on so much theology? Why do you have to insist on, insist on understanding what these words actually mean? Because the more we seem to dig, the more we try to understand, the more we ask the question, what does God actually mean by what he has actually said, the more people seem to get upset. So shouldn't we just strive for unity at all costs? Beloved, I tell you, no. Because based on what the Apostle Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that peace is not real peace. There is no peace when we seek peace for the sake of peace and peace alone. There's only peace when we're found in Christ Jesus. He is the only way of peace. In addition to this, I tried to make this clear, but one of the things that I cherish about being a pastor of a local church, and particularly a church of this size, is the ability to receive feedback from my messages. And I want you to know that when I tell you my door is open, I mean it. There, there's three parts to every sermon, you realize. There's what I mean to say, there's what I actually say, and there's what you heard me say. And so it's very valuable for me as a pastor, and it's valuable for us as a body when you come to me and say, did I hear you say this? You don't assume, if I say something that doesn't match up with what you know of God's word, you don't assume that I'm just off my rocker. You say, look, I know you to love God's word, and I know you to try and faithfully teach it, but I heard this. So is there a chance I misheard what you meant to say or you didn't say what you meant to say? And so one of the beautiful things about being a part of a church this size is I'm able to get that kind of feedback. And I heard from some that there was confusion that I said that if you are in Christ Jesus, then you're guaranteed to have peace everywhere you go. Beloved, the opposite of that is true. He has said very clearly in his word, what fellowship has light with darkness? The Lord Jesus himself, Matthew 10, 34, said, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. He goes on to say that a person's enemies will be those of his own household. That there's a division that comes when we stand upon the word of God. Now, we can generically talk about God. We can have some vague sense of, yes, I love Jesus, and yes, I confess him as Lord, and I have some acknowledgement of the fact that he died on a cross and rose again. And yeah, look, for the most part, this is a standard of life for me, what I find here in this word. But don't try to figure out what it actually says. Don't try to demand that there's actually a real meaning to it because then we lack peace. That the more that we seek for that, the more we seek for understanding, the more we seek to build our life upon this truth, the more we're going to find enmity and hostility. Very well, we may look up and find that we've got enemies within our own household. On Wednesday night, we were studying together Psalm 69, and we found the words there that the reproaches of those who have fallen on you have fallen on me, that the people who hate God are going to hate you. First John 3.13 says, do not be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. We must recognize that there will be enmity. There will be hatred out there in the world. But allow me to go a step further. That even within the visible church, 
even amongst those who count themselves as Christian, there's always the opportunity for division. The Apostle Paul, in talking about the Lord's Supper, you remember he was chastising the church in Corinth for the way that they observed what was not actually the Lord's Supper, but they called the Lord's Supper. That there was a disunity and there was a division and there was a, a separation amongst the body that just shouldn't be. But you need to listen to what he says. After chastising them for their disunity, after reprimanding them for their selfishness and only looking out for their own interests, he goes on to say, this 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen. I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be fractions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Do you hear what he's saying? He says division is sin. Division is not good, but you need to recognize that God has a good purpose even in that division he's pruning. As the word of God is taught, as we seek to understand what God really means by what he really said, as we seek to build our lives with great zealousness upon the word of God and the word of God alone, there will be division between light and darkness, between those who are true believers in Jesus Christ and those who are posers. Those who are willing to pursue Christ Jesus as long as it's easy, as long as they hear the things that they want to hear, as long as everything we teach matches with their traditions then there will be some outward, external appearance of peace. But that's not the peace that he's talking about here. So church, you've got to understand that there will not be peace with the non-believer. There will not be peace with the poser. There will not be peace for those that have captured the name of Christ and use it to their own ends. And yet inside the church of Jesus Christ, amongst the true saints, the body that God is building, there will be peace. I say all this to you, though, so that you don't get thrown off. Charles Spurgeon once said that a good man has his enemies. He would not be like his Lord if he didn't. If we are without enemies, we might fear that we are not the friend of God. For friendship with the world is enmity with God. Lest you think this is just the words of a common man, the Lord Jesus Christ himself said in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. What a thing. Woe to you. Count yourself cursed when everybody speaks well of you. For so they did to the false prophets. If you look up and everybody's singing your praises, you're probably wrong. You've probably missed the mark. You can probably count yourself as a false prophet. So it occurs to me as I consider the feedback that I've received and I spent these last two weeks really meditating on what did God have to say to me in this text? It occurred to me that for many people, the first step to true biblical peace is breaking our addiction from the need to be loved. As ironic and upside down as it sees, the only way to true and lasting and biblical peace is to stop caring about the fact that you're going to be hated. And then you build your life upon the word of God and you seek him. And you cherish the unity that he builds. While there's going to be a lack of peace out there, again, I say amongst the true church of God, there will be peace. And the hatred that we receive out there ought to make this peace all the sweeter. I told you before, church, we're a wartime people. We're in the middle of spiritual warfare. That this place, that how I view this gathering, this Lord's Day gathering that we enjoy once a week, of course, our primary goal is to bring glory to the living God. But in addition to this, I view this as a triage center. We're coming into this place wounded and cut and hurt and hated. And we come to the great physician and we say, would you bind us up? Would you give us that sweet salve for our souls? Would you kiss our boo-boos and remind us that you love us? That's why I come to this place and I preach to the saints. We don't deliver some message that appeases the lost mind, that makes men comfortable in their sin. We lead them to the living God. We bring them to Christ Jesus in which there is real peace. And we say to them, go in peace. When they lock you in jail, when they spit upon you and curse you and call you a cultist. A, is that a thing? Say you're a member of a cult. Is that a cultist? I just invented it. They say that you're a member of a cult or that you're a heretic or that you're a 
a blasphemer or that you're the devil. You rest in your peace with God. So he goes on to say, for he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the wall, excuse me, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, I touched very briefly on this particular passage just right at the very end last week. And I told you there's some real interpretive challenges. If you're somebody that reads from the King James Bible or the NASB that I think normally nails it, you'll find it's translated like this, that Christ Jesus did this. He broke down this hostility by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That some translations read this to mean that the law of ordinances and commandments which God has given, that that in and of itself is the enmity. But I think that the ESV, the NIV, they get it more correct when they say that Christ broke down this wall of hostility by way of. That he, he took down, he abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And that, in taking that down and abolishing that, that is the way that he broke down this wall. But the law itself is not the problem. The law of God was not given to us to create hostility. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7:12 that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He wrote to young pastor Timothy that we know that the law is good if one uses it well. That there's a, there's a purpose for God's law and that if God's people use it lawfully and use it well, that then we find it to be a good thing. You remember that as Moses was recounting the law. He was the second time giving the law to the people of God. There in the book of Deuteronomy that he said that surely this great nation, that the nations will look upon this great nation and they will hear of the ordinances. They will hear of the commandments. They will hear of the law. And they will say, surely this great nation is wise and an understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to them as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? The purpose for the law was that the nations would look upon Israel and say, what a nation, what wisdom, what goodness, what power, and what a God they serve that would come so near to them and give them these commandments and these ordinances. We're reminded that the people of God were meant to be a kingdom of priests representing God to the world and the, the people back towards God. They were meant to be a light unto the nation. That in Father Abraham, the world was to be blessed. But instead, we know that they built, they used this law to build for themselves a dividing wall of hostility. So we've got to ask then, what does Paul mean when he says that in his flesh, Christ has abolished the law? Does that mean that we live in a time of lawlessness? Does that mean that the law of God has nothing to say to us in our contemporary setting? Well, surely we know this can't be the case. We know that Christ Jesus himself, in another setting, on the Mount, on, 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 uh, the Sermon on the Mount, we know that it was there that he said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. So there's one sense in which he has not abolished the law, but there's one sense in his flesh that he has abolished the law. So what does this mean? Well, I submit to you that the easiest way to make sense of this is to slow down and ask, what does Paul mean when he uses the phrase, the law? See, much bad theology comes when we don't slow down and actually ask, what do these words mean? Or when we assume that every time a word is used in Scripture, even by the same author, that it's always used in the same way. Take the word flesh, for instance. It's in the same letter that we read that we were following after the prince of the power of the air, that we found ourselves as children of wrath. Why? Because we were following the passions of the flesh. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans that he who is in the flesh cannot please God. We know that flesh, sometimes when used by the Apostle Paul, means that Adamic nature. That, that, that power of sin that is work, with, work within natural man. But we also go on to read here that he's talking about Christ Jesus in the flesh. He's the Holy One of God. He is perfect. He is righteous. He is without sin. So in this instance, flesh just means to be fully man. Specifically, to be fully man and lay down his life as the representative of man. So we've got to slow down and ask, what does he mean here when he says the law? Sometimes the law can point to the whole of the Old Testament. Sometimes the law can point just to those first five books, to the Pentateuch. Sometimes the law can point to that entire period of time, that entire administration of God's covenant from Moses to Christ. 
Or sometimes, like here, it can speak specifically to those commandments that were given to, to them in ordinances. Clearly, that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about commandments and ordinances and laws more typically the way we think about the word law. But does that mean then that he has abolished the law? Again, I ask, does the law have nothing to say to us today? You recall that last summer we spent all of our Wednesday nights. I preached you through the Ten Commandments. Was that foolishness? Was that just an opportunity for us to come together and look back and say, look at what used to be important to God. Look at how God used to relate to his people. Look at the way God used to expect his people to ask, to, to act. Aren't we thankful we're on the backside? Aren't we thankful that these commandments no longer stand us? No, I stood in this place and I looked at you and I said, do this. Don't do this. Thus saith the Lord. So we've got to remember that generally speaking, the law of God, these commandments and these ordinances that have been given to us, that were first given to Israel, that generally speaking, men have divided them up into three categories. Now, you won't find these five lines, these fine lines of division laid out in Scripture. But if you view it through this lens, you can see it pretty quickly as you think about them. That first, there's what's called the moral law. It's that law that expresses to us the very nature of God. From the very beginning of time, that which God has written on the hearts of men, again, to reveal something about himself to them. And we know that because men have suppressed that truth, because their hearts have perverted and twisted this law, this moral sense of right and wrong that is written on their consciences, because of this, we know that God came and there on tablets of stone at Sinai, he wrote these commandments. The summation of his moral law, he gave them in these ten good words to Moses to give to the people. The first four of them telling us how we're to relate to God. How do we honor this holy God? How do we live rightly before him? How do we make sure that we don't offend him? Those next six commandments talking about how we're to honor and how we're to treat those who are made in his image. How do we relate one to another? But we know that these 10 commandments, they were in effect. This moral code, it was written in the DNA of all creation long before the giving of the law at Sinai through Moses. Just go back to the very beginning. I want you to think about the fact that God had great concern about the way in which he was worshipped. See the way that he rejected Cain's offering and received Abel's. Or think about the fact that when Cain took the life of Abel, although God had not yet written on tablets of stone, thou shalt not murder. Still, we all read that text and we know, and Cain himself knew, it's a sin to murder. He had broken God's moral law. And yet... As a gift to God's people, he gave them these Ten Commandments for their good. The law is good because God is good. Again, it's a gift because men had perverted the law in their own heart. And so he puts them out there as an external guide to show them what does it mean to live in communion with God and rightly with his people. We know that on the back side of this, he promised that someday, as a promise of the new covenant, he would write this law on our hearts. He would give us hearts of flesh that we could embrace and love and say with the psalmist, in your law, do I truly delight, O God? That was the way we're to think about this moral law. And we see it continuing on to this day for all of humanity, whether, those, whether they call themselves Christian or not. They're still under this moral law. As a matter of fact, it's in this same book, the book of Ephesians. We get to Ephesians chapter 6 someday, and what we're going to find there is that he's speaking to children. And he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. What does he then point us towards? What is the basis for which he can look to children and say, children, obey your parents? Did he say, children, obey your parents because we are no longer under the law? He says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. In this period of grace, in this era of the church, in this new covenant, he continues to point back to the moral law of God. Written at Sinai, now written upon our hearts. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may long live in the land. But in addition to this, in addition to the laws that we might call moral, is what we, the laws that we might refer to as civil or judicial laws. These were the ways in which these people, as a, as a commonwealth, that's what he calls them here, the commonwealth of Israel, as a nation state, how are they going to work out this moral law and their treatment of each other? You might refer to this as case law. What does it look like to love my brother when my ox gets loose and gores his? What does it mean to love my brother with regards to the boundaries of our land? What does it look like to love my brother when he is caught stealing from me? 
that God shows his people how this moral law is to work out within their society. Still holding forth the character of God, still showing them what it means to live as a holy nation. Now, we come now to a time when God doesn't deal with his people as a nation state, as a, a commonwealth of Israel any longer. We're not found in one people, in one nation. We're found in one person, in Christ Jesus. So because of this, we find that some of the applications and the penalties, they don't necessarily apply. But the general equity of these laws do. The idea that, if, that the specific punishment for my dog getting loose and killing your dog may not be the same. That the specific penalty for me taking something from you may not be the same. The specific penalty for adultery may not be the same. But the reality that those precepts still stand. This still shows us something about what is important to God. That's why we find the Apostle Paul pointing back to that same law. To those same precepts and ordinances when he talks about the way in which we're to treat our ministers. You recall that he says, it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Again, he is pointing back to the general principle of paying a man his wages. How is he doing that? By pointing to the law of God. So we see that this law still, still applies, at least in its general equity, in its sense of rightness and wrongness. But then there's a third category of law. That's what we might call the ceremonial law, the religious law. These regulations regarding what is clean and what is unclean. These things which prefigure Christ, which point us forward to him. These specific rituals and ordinances, the priesthood and the temple and the sacrifices. All these things that show us how can an unholy people, how can a sinful people approach a holy God in worship and live. We know that these were given to the people in ordinances and in, and in commandments so that they could safely dwell with God. Now we know that just as with the civil law and with the moral law, these ceremonial laws, they're not capricious. They're not arbitrary. They show us something about God. They show us that sinful man can't walk casually and cavalierly and carelessly into the presence of God and live. They show us something about his infinite holiness and the fact that he cares. He doesn't just care that you worship him and him alone. He cares how you worship him. And so we see that these commandments, they're all tied in some way, whether civil, ceremonial or moral, they're all tied in some way to the character of God. And yet we know that with the coming of Christ Jesus, those laws which are called ceremonial, those laws which tell us how we can approach God and live, we know that he has fulfilled them all. We look backwards to the Old Testament and I've asked myself often, what do we do with all this? Like, why didn't Christ Jesus just come from the start? Why did God have to have the blood of bulls and goats and a temple and a priesthood? Why did he allow the people to walk through this time where priests might come casually and offer offer strange fire upon the altar and be consumed and die. What is the purpose in all this? Why didn't you just get to the point? Why didn't Christ Jesus come at Sinai? And I heard a man one time say that it's a bit like taking your children and reading to them a picture book. That there were, there were people underage. And so in order to prepare them, in order to show them, in order to pave the way, he created in this nation of Israel the world's largest pop-up book. He showed them pictures that they could understand. And what happens when you read to your children a, a, a little picture Bible book or a pop-up picture book? Eventually they grow and they learn and they come to understand. So that sometime when the day of maturity comes, they can fully comprehend what the words on the page mean. It seems to me that this is, what, this is what God was doing. He was preparing his people for the coming of Christ Jesus. We know that he is the true temple. We know that he is the Lamb of God that's come to take away the sins of the world. We know that he is the great high priest. We know that he has come to cleanse us, to wash us once and for all in his spirit and with his word. We know that he has fulfilled all these promises to bring us near to God. Isn't that all that we've talked about in Hebrews 9 and 10? That he's made a new and living way into the holy of holies through the curtain that is his flesh. That no longer do we come through human priests. No longer do we come through the blood of bulls and goats. We come in Christ Jesus. But I need you to understand, this doesn't change anything about the character of worship. We still need atonement. It's been satisfied. It's been accomplished. We still need a high priest to intercede for us. It's Christ Jesus, and he continues today. There's still a holy of holies in which God dwells, and we still have to come through a temple, through a curtain. And it is Christ Jesus. Do you see? The nature of worship hasn't changed. It's just been elevated. 
All these ceremonial laws, they have been fulfilled and swept up into the heavenly places, completely changing the way that we approach God. It seems to me that this must be what's on Paul's mind here. Not the moral law, not even the judicial law, but the ceremonial law. These things which divided the Jew from the Gentile. Much of what we talked about in the circumcision versus the uncircumcision. The way in which man can approach God and live. And what he's saying here is that it's in Christ Jesus, in his flesh, he has fulfilled it all. He has set it aside. Not destroyed it, but he has set it aside. He has brought it to its fulfillment so that we approach him. Not casually, not cavalierly, but confidently. Knowing that in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, it's all been accomplished. Now, Christ Jesus obviously came to fulfill the whole of the law, the civil, the judicial, and the moral. And God willing, next week, I hope to show you the way in which his coming and his accomplishing all that God commanded, it does change our relationship to the moral law once and for all. It still remains as a rule of life, but never a way for us to earn righteousness with God. So God willing, we'll come back to that next week. But again, I say in this context, it seems clear that when Paul speaks of the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, this dividing wall of hostility, that that's what he talks about. That which has been abrogated, that which has been set aside and has expired in the coming of Christ Jesus, that which what's kept man at a distance. And we see this visibly in his death and the tearing of the curtain. But then we see it in A.D. 70 with the destruction of the temple. You remember that I told you that there was a wall that separated the court of Gentiles from the court of Israel. There was this wall of division, a physical, literal, concrete barrier. You remember that there was a sign upon that that said, any foreigner, any Gentile that passes through this gate, he has only himself to blame for his death, which follows. We see that that wall in and of itself has been taken down physically, literally destroyed. A picture of the spiritual reality of what Jesus has accomplished so that we can come confidently to Christ Jesus. And we know how very difficult it is for the people of Israel to understand this. I want you to think about long after the day of Pentecost, long after the coming of the Holy Spirit, we see the Apostle Peter having this conversation, a debate of sorts with God in Acts 10. You remember that this sheet is laid down from heaven with all types of food and he is told, rise, kill and eat. But Peter himself, he argues with the Lord. He says, by no means, Lord, I've never touched anything that is unclean. But we know that God rebuked Peter. This is a recurring theme in his life. God reveals. Peter rejects. God rebukes. God says, what I've made clean, do not call common. And we know then that Peter followed the Lord's instruction. And he went to the house of a man called Cornelius, a Gentile. And upon arriving there, he says, you yourself know that how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. I say all this to you to say it took the special revelation of God. It took the voice of God to convince even Peter, the apostle Peter, who had been with Christ to understand what God had done in taking down this wall of hostility. We know that the church continued to wrestle with this. Think about the Jerusalem council asking, does the Gentile have to become a Jew to come into the household of God? Is circumcision necessary? Are the dietary laws still necessary? Does the standard of clean and unclean still remain? We know in addition to this, that there was this confrontation between Paul and Peter. Because Peter, while he had this special revelation of God, he still missed it. He would eat with the Gentiles until the big dogs from Jerusalem came. And then what did he do? Pretending like he didn't know them. So we know that there was this wrestling that went all the way through the early days of the church. I want you to think about the calling of the first deacons in the Acts 6. They had to do this because there was, a, there was a division between the Hellenistic and the Hebrew widows amongst the church and the way that they were receiving their rations. And we can sympathize with them in this because they had completely given their life over to the standard of this law. So they had to be asking, God, are you telling me that everything I've devoted my life to Everything I've understood about the way in which I'm to approach you, that that's now done away with? And are you telling me that these outsiders, look, I lived 40 years under the weight of this law. You've now removed this law, satisfied and fulfilled and set aside this law. And you're telling me they get to come in having never lived one day under the weight of that law? How's that fair? I had to live in the pop-up book. I had to sacrifice. I had to live my life every day not knowing, am I going to get a, bo a boil on my arm and then all of a sudden I'm unclean and I can't go into the temple anymore? Is my wife going to get her period and all of a sudden she's unclean and she can't go into the temple? What, what are we dealing with here? They didn't live under this. I did. How is this fair? 
Give me my wages. I can sympathize with them in this. I've been a good little boy. I've done all the right things. I've read my Bible. I've gone to church. I've prayed for others. I've paid my tithe. And you're telling me this dude on a cross just gets access to the kingdom? Why? Because he cries out to you in his last moments? It's the heart of haughtiness. It's the heart of legalism. It's the heart of self-righteousness. But I can relate to it. I can sympathize with it. And so we realize that while this dividing wall of hostility has come down, while Christ Jesus in his flesh has done everything that needs to be done to bring those who are far off near, so near that they can come into the very throne room of God, into the Holy of Holies, we realize that while this wall of division and hostility and enmity has come down, something more has to happen if there's going to be unity and peace. You understand this. We can take down all the walls we want. But unless something more happens to change the heart, there will be no real peace, no real unity, no real oneness to come. God's got to do more. Think about this. We can put a wall, we can put a sign on our wall out there that says everyone welcome. Come on in. We welcome you, no matter what color, no matter what stripe, no matter what background, no matter what you've done, everyone is welcome here. But if what they find when they walk into this place is hardened hearts, Hearts that still deep down have a hatred and a hostility and an enmity between them. They will know there's no peace in this place. There's no way of welcome in this place. And so again, I say, what do you do with this? Because man, you, you know, you don't have the ability to turn your own heart. You can't cause yourself to love that which you once hated. Any more that you can call yourself to cause yourself to hate that which you once loved. Now, we know that the commandment to love is exactly that. It's a commandment. It's more than just emotion. It's more than just feelings because feels not real because you can't trust your own heart. We know this, but we know that also what he's talking about here does go to the matters of the heart. But you think about the way that Jesus says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to the judgment. You can say, look, I loved my brother. I didn't take his life. I love my brother. I didn't cuss him out along the road. He says, if you have hatred and enmity and anger in your heart, you have committed murder. You understand? He's, he's driving people to the reality that it's not just about the things that are out here. It's not just about an external unity. Look, we can put the sign on the door. We can welcome everybody in. We can grit our teeth and say, welcome. I'm glad you're here. But if there's enmity and hatred and hostility in our heart, we have sinned. And there is no peace. But Christ Jesus has come to show us you can't fix the problem. You can't build the unity. You can't cause the peace. That's why he says here, in his flesh, Christ Jesus has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he might create. See that word? So that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. What does the Apostle Paul say in Galatians 6.15? For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but what? But a new creation. You're not the creator. Let's get this established. You've never created anything in your life. You've rearranged some things. You've reorganized some things. You've taken some of God's stuff and put it in some different configuration. You've never created a thing. Everything that's been created... This same God who breathed the stars, who created the universe, who brought everything that is out of nothing. It's saying that same God <clears throat> is the one that must create this one new man. That must create this unity and this peace. And beloved, this should be a breath of fresh air for you. Because as I'm talking about this desire for peace, this desire for unity, I don't think I'm going to be able to get here today. But what you're going to find is that his desire for unity and peace is very much bound up with his own reputation. You remember that the whole point of this portion of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it began with talk about the power of God. We're going to get to chapter 3 and he's going to say, I'm saying something to the authorities and the rulers in heavenly places. I'm looking to the demons and I'm looking to the world. I'm saying, look at the thing that only I can do. By the same power with which I've raised my son from the dead, I've brought these people near and I've bound them as one. So you ought to breathe a deep sigh of relief. Good. It's not up to us to build unity. Unless you're a man who finds his sense of purpose, his sense of identity, his sense of value in your own ability to try and build unity. Now, I can tell you as a pastor, that's a tempting thing. I want you people to love each other. I want you people to have this unity first for the glory of God. 
for the sake of his witness to the world, but for our own benefit. Think about the words that David read. So that you would hurt when your brother hurts. So that you would rejoice when your brother rejoices. So that we would carry each other's burden. So that each part, each member would do its own job. I desire that more than anything. But I know I can't do it. There's not programs. There's not pleading. There's not power in any sermon that I can preach. I know that the only one that can build this unity, the only one that can build this new man is God. We've got to remember this. So that when we find this unity in the church, the answer isn't, uh-oh, we better do some stuff. It's no, we better cry out to the living God. We better learn to better rest in him. We better get our eyes fixed on him. We better guard the front door. People wonder, why do we make it so difficult to join this church? You go through a class, you go through an interview, we, we talk, we examine, we ask you about your life. Why do you do all this? Look, I told you I'm a Christian. Let me walk down the aisle and I'll come in. Because there won't be unity if you're not in Christ. I can't see your heart. I'm not the arbiter of your salvation. I'm not the final judge. But don't you see why we've got a responsibility to examine you, to ask you these questions. At very least say, are you making this your confession? Did you confess in Christ Jesus as Lord? Because otherwise you won't have peace with his people. You won't be part of this one body that he's building. But he goes on to say that he's not just creating in himself a man, does he? He says create himself a new man. You see this? Something that didn't otherwise exist. <clears throat> Something that didn't previously exist. This isn't new and improved. He's not taking the Gentiles and just working around the edges to clean them up. He's not taking the Jews and making them into Gentiles. He's taking them together as one. One new people, one new person, one new man, one new humanity called the church. He's not taking the best parts from one and the best parts from another. He's building something that had never been because the old was broken. The old, that which we once were in Adam, it was broken. There was no unity to be found there. And so he's not tweaking, he's not twisting, he's not improving. And so what this means for us then is as we're brought into the church, as we enjoy this oneness and this unity that he's creating in this one man, everything that we once were, once were now amounts to nothing. Now, you're still who you were. Your character doesn't change. Your, um, your characteristics don't change. Your unique, unique identity doesn't change. We're not a bunch of robots. We don't all put a bunch of jumpsuits and, well, that guy do wait for a comet to come. It's, that's not what we're talking about here. You still have your unique personality when you come into this place. But everything that you once were, it counts for nothing in this place. Do you understand? With regards to your standing with God, with regards to your unity with the body, with regards to your usefulness in this church, who you once were is not the ground that you stand on. It's being something new. Now, again, this should be a breath of fresh air because so many of us should look backwards and go, thank God, because everything that I once was was a mess. Everything that I once was was stained and broken and useless. Thank God that in Christ Jesus, I'm a part of something new. I myself am something new. Unless you like who you once were. Unless you found righteousness in who you, who you once were. Unless you have a hard time letting go of the reputation and the power. And the... If you hate your old life, you'll rejoice. If you loved who you were in the world. You love the promises of the world. You're going to find this as the most horrible thing ever. You're going to want to build a name for yourself within the church. He says here that he's built one new man, created one new man in place of two. There were once two men standing there, a Gentile and a Jew, a free man and a slave, a black man and a white man, a woman and a, and a man. There was once two standing there before him, and now there's one. The creative work of God has now created something that never once was, and now it is. One new man in the place of two. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, one new man, it's an interesting way of saying this, isn't it? Why didn't he say we're now one new race, or one new nation, or one new people, or one new group? Or one new household. Now there are various places where he speaks in those types of terms, isn't there? But right here he says that we are one new man. One new person. I think the reason he says this is to make clear. This is not some organ organizational thing. It's organic. And living. And growing. And vital. 
It's the kind of thing where you can't figure out where one part stops and the other begins. Do you understand? Is this me? Yes. Is this me? Yes. Is this me? Yes. Is this me? Yes. I'm one whole man. So the whole of me hurts when another part hurts. The whole of me rejoices when another part rejoices. Do you see it? We're not a bunch of parts that have been bolted and glued together. We're not a bunch of parts that come together and you can take one part and reject the rest. The reality is you hate me. You hate the whole of this new person. I don't get to take and, 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 and choose the parts that I like. It used, to always, it used to always baffle me sometimes. People would say things to my wife, I think sometimes forgetting that she was married to me. I mean, like expressing hatred towards me to my wife, and she'd look at me and go, do you, you understand we're one? You don't get to have me and reject him. Just as you don't get to have Christ and reject the church, just as you don't have to get to have one member and reject all the rest. We are one new man. Now, I speak about this from a local, visible sense, right? Of course, what he's talking about is the invisible, universal church. But the reality is, it's already very easy for you to love Christians on the other side of the globe because they don't offend you. It's easy for you to assume the best about them over there. But it's the ones in this body. We're the ones that hurt each other. We're the ones that let each other down. We're the ones whose sin spills out onto each other. And so it's the church militant. It's the church visible. It's the corporate church, the local church. It's the people that we see in this building week in and week out. These are the ones we need to be reminded. We're one. One new thing that didn't exist. That by the power of God in Christ Jesus, he is created. Do you see it? We've spoken about this often with regards to our union with Christ. That Paul's favorite way of saying um, that he was a Christian was to say that he is in Christ. Something like he is the vine, we are the branches. Isn't that what Christ said? Apart from him, we can do nothing. Ephesians 1.22, that Christ is the head over all things, the church being his body. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you're, now you're the body of Christ and individually members of it. The reality that God has never really looked at you apart from being in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what Paul says? Before the foundation of the world, we have been joined to him. But the reality is that as we have been joined to Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world, so we have been joined to each other. That we ought to never think about ourselves. You as a Christian should never think about yourself as apart from Christ. You should never think about yourself outside of Christ Jesus. And you should never think of yourself as outside this new humanity, this new man, this body of Christ. You should always think of yourself because God always thinks of yourself as one with this body. It's inseparable. Never to separate. Again, I say, yes, the visible church, the invisible church, excuse me, but the visible as well. So I need to, need to wrap up here. The question is, what, what does this then look like, this unity? Okay, Christ is doing it. It's the power of Christ. It's the working of Christ. It's the working of, of a new humanity that he's creating. Where there once was two, now there is one. He does the work, but surely we're not passive in this. Of course not. That's never the way the scripture works. He calls us to charge towards something. And we see something of this in Colossians 3. Colossians 3.11, he talks about, again, the fact there's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no circumcised, there's no uncircumcised. He then goes on to talk about some things that we should then set aside. Not just hostility, but sin that we should set aside. But then in verse 14, Colossians 3.14, he says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. What's he calling us to do here? To put on love. Put on this love that binds us together in harmony. To rejoice in our hearts. To rest in this peace. We don't create the, create the peace. What's our job then? It's to rest in the peace. It's to believe the word of God when he says, I've created this thing in you. It's to continually draw your eyes back to Christ Jesus. Recognizing that it's only in him that we'll find this. One more text before we come to the table. I gave you some homework. Who did your pre-homework this week? Any of you? Okay, very good. That's a lot of hands. The rest of you, I feel sad for you. I ask you to read John 17. and pre, It doesn't have to be pre-homework. It can be post-homework. Go home today and read John 17, the high priestly prayer. 
over and over again what you're going to find there. One, two, three, four, five different times you're going to find there in John 17, Christ Jesus expressing the reality that there are a people who have been given to him by God. He said, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying to these whom you have given me. He's got some very specific prayers. One of them is with regards to the future. He prays that we would be with him to see the glory that has been his from before the foundation of the world because of the love that the Father has for him. He has a desire that we would see his glory. He says that he's already shown us his glory. He's already expressed to us something of his power and his majesty and his might and his beauty. But we don't see it yet fully because our eyes are clouded by sin. And so his prayer to the Father is that these people whom he has given, these people whom Christ has received, the people who Christ has died for, why did he die for them? Why has Christ died for us? Because we were a gift from the Father. Driven by love for the Father, he has laid down his life to purchase his people. And he's got a prayer. He prays that we, prays that we would be with him to see his glory. The glory that has always been his. But he has a prayer for the here and now as well. I want you to look at it. John 17, 20. This is where we'll finish. I do not ask for these only. Speaking of the disciples there in that room. I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. You believe because of the apostolic witness. You believe because of the word of the apostles. Here's what he asks. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them, listen now, and loved them even as you loved me. What Christ Jesus is saying is that we have been swept up into this inner Trinitarian love. It's a love that the Father has for the Son and the love that the Son has for the Father and the unity that the Father and the Son have as one that we have been wrapped up into that because of the Father giving us to the Son, because of the Son laying down His life for us. His prayer then, His prayer now, His prayer at the right hand of the Father as He intercedes for us in this moment is, Father, I pray that they would be perfectly one. I pray that they would see and believe that I so love them because I, they were a gift from you to me, that they would experience in a supernatural way this unity that can only be found in me. That as they come to this table and they taste and they see and they observe the love that I had for them and laying down my life, that they would in a way that they have never previously experienced, they would understand the unity that they are meant to have in me. Again, I tell you, brothers, this is not a thing that you can do. This is not a thing that you are meant to accomplish. It's a thing that you're meant to come and rest in and receive. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that you have not left us as lone wolves in this place. That you have not left us as we are, but that you have brought us together as one man, one purpose, one person with one purpose. That you have accomplished it all in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So, Father, I pray that you help us now to rest in that. We come to the table to receive something we haven't purchased, to ex experience something that we have not bought, that we couldn't accomplish. So help us, Father, come with empty hands of faith, with hearts prepared to receive what only you can give. I ask you to do it now for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.